This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. So I can't wait for this conversation. Dan Desjardin is somebody I've known for quite a long time. And magically, through a connection in Little Cayman, I meet a true disruptor and somebody who's literally changing the world in front of our eyes. And it's in a layer that we don't think about. We take computing power for granted, but we don't think how it can be used, who owns it, and how it can be leveraged in different ways. And I'm going to go through this story with Dan. And I think, I'm guessing, yet again, he's going to blow our minds. When change comes, opportunity abounds. We're about to enter a period of the fastest pace of technological change in all human history, something we refer to as the exponential age. And Real Vision is going to be your guide to this incredible future. Dan, fantastic to see you on Real Vision, finally. Thank you very much, Raul, for having me. Uh, you know, amazingly, you and I got introduced by a friend of ours, a mutual friend who lives in Little Cayman. And he's like, you need to meet this guy, Dan. He's doing some really cool shit. We've been talking for, I don't know, three years or so, maybe even longer, maybe four years as you've been building this out. And I've been wanting to get you on Real Vision. And now, now is the time because I think it's super fascinating. I've had this big, this big thesis around what I call the exponential age, which is the coming together of all of these technologies, of which what you're doing, stuff like distributed compute, is a big part of the future of, of where the world goes. So before we start into what you're up to, give people your background, where you've come from, what do you do, that kind of stuff, and how you got here. And really quickly, I, I was reminiscing on that as well when we uh, stepped into your office and, and Grand, and you gave me the, the Grand Tour. Um, that was what three years ago. So it, it's it's been really interesting to maybe even longer, these, maybe four years, maybe four years. Yeah. So a lot of water to the bridge, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here, and uh, maybe summarize some of those the journey so far. It's been a lot of fun, and and same. Congrats to you and you know, Real Vision and with the expansion age. This is exciting. Uh, quick background: um, I have a mixed background in in physics and uh, military aviation. Um, and, uh, especially on the research side, like my, my, what passion or what, what, uh, elevates me is, is answering questions and research and making tomorrow happen today and accelerating innovation and whatnot. And, and compute from that perspective, um, is a means to an end. It's a tool, um, for innovation and, and making new medicines and space elevators and aircraft and everything. Um, and I always needed more compute for 
my research. And if you, um, if you any ever you go into a classroom, you ask students, hey, put your hand up if you've ever used a thousand cores before. Nobody puts their hand up, you know? Uh, and that's just a thousand cores. Imagine saying, Does, has anyone ever used a million cores? Now, the people on the planet who have used a million cores before, you could probably count on, on a couple of what hands. What is a core, by the way? You go, I'm going to have so, to ask you many questions. Yeah, no, it's go. good. So, so we, can, we can go into slang. So uh, when I say core, I'm referring to CPU cores, but of course, GPUs, which is uh, uh, at least 20 uh, to, to 100 times more powerful than, than the CPU core, um, uh, will give you even more oomph. Uh, but typically, your laptop will have about uh, between 8 cores, 16 if you've got a good water, even 32 if you've really dropped a lot of dough, and uh, graphics card and the GPU. So typically, that's what you're typical um, home user or advanced uh, scientists on the lab will use. So going from eight or 16 to a thousand or a million, this is where you can take a sledgehammer uh, to, to innovation and really light fires, right? So compute, 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 the name of the game for, for uh, the era of innovation, especially with AI. So how did you, so give me that journey then. So you're in research, and then what happens? How do you get into what you're doing now? Come up with this crazy idea. T talk me through that story. Well, I'll, I'll be modest and, and start by saying that the, old, the idea of like putting together computers for, for accelerating research, that's as old as computing itself. Uh, it's an old concept and nobody should be uh, going around saying, oh, uh, distributed computing is going to save the world. Uh, it's, it's been around forever. Uh, if we even harken back to the days of City at Home, uh, they're just more clever approaches that can take advantage of technologies. It's a better way of stitching things together. But we'll, we'll get back to that. Me personally, it's it's a rather uh, hopefully relatable story to people who've been doing some modeling. But um, I was sitting there in my lab on my laptop trying to make my code run. Um, and it would take days to run through some of these simulations. And whether it's physics simulations or financial modeling or risk modeling or what have you, uh, it's the same thing. It's running a bunch of compute scenarios. It's crunching numbers and data. And it spits out an answer eventually. Um, and so it would take days on my, my, my typical computer. Uh, meanwhile, there were a whole bunch of computers in the lab next to me doing absolutely nothing. And uh, the dream was, oh, okay, we could tap into this. And of course you could. There was some software that existed in, at the time. Um, but it, would, it was an absolute nightmare to try to configure. Um, and keep in mind, so I spent eight years learning physics and then math and then to code the math. And then by the time I was able to produce results from my own answer my business questions, now I had to learn how to administer clusters or learn the cloud or to manage a data center. I was like, you know what? That, that, that I spent enough time becoming an expert. I'm not going to now learn how to administer data centers. Um, and so what I did was I manually walked around to each computer and I said, okay, you do compute one to 200. You do 201 to 400. So I was sort of manually running around to these computers and making them do this stuff, which is, uh, surprisingly more efficient than spending the, the weeks to months to get up to speed on uh, grid toolboxes and other things. So that was my personal frustration. And I can certainly um, speak on behalf of all of my, um, uh, my co-researchers, you know, everyone, chemists, biologists, mathematicians, same with them. They spent so long getting good at asking good questions and, and, and attacking ways of coming up with the answers. They don't have time to learn all of the new fangled tools that have somehow inserted themselves between researchers and developers and the hardware that spits out the results. You know, we've heard about DevOps and FinOps and 
um, you know, no code as a service or low code, no code. Like there's all this stuff, this whole cottage industry that is somehow interjected, you know, between people asking questions and the hardware that produces the answers. Um, and that's what we wanted to get rid of, or that's what I wanted to get rid of is I wanted to make my life easier as a researcher. Um, so that, that's how we got into it. I was tapped on the shoulder at a barbecue party by some friends. This was the rise of Bitcoin and, and crypto. Like, hey, cloud's getting big. Crypto's getting big. Why don't we put all this together, do this cryptocurrency incentivized distributed compute uh, cloud kind of thing. And um, that's how it started. Um, but six years later, um, we've uh, succeeded in building um, a compute platform that's no different from typical concepts, but that uniquely uses web technology. So we can walk into any hotel lobby or any audience full of people and say, pull out your phones, for example, open a browser tab, type in this little code, dcp.work, and press start and you're instantaneously part of a compute cluster. So it's secure and ubiquitous, it's fast, it works on every device. And so that's, that's the, the sort of like the, the dream coming true many years later, how to make spreading questions computational problems resulting from these questions across devices everywhere. By just Easy. using a browser. Browsers, uh, we have a screen saver version now, so city at home style, really? uh, dockerized, like, it doesn't matter. We've done it on fridges, phones, laptops, everything else. But all this to say, it's not about, like, I don't want to be like a compute drum. I think everyone knows that compute is sort of uh, the core of what makes innovation happen nowadays and it's underpinning all of AI and everything else. Um, but I think the next question is, how do you make it more accessible? Not just from a cost perspective, and I'm sure you're all aware of the fact that um, people are getting sticker shocked. Um, sales volumes with commercial cloud providers are starting to decrease as people are becoming a bit more cost conscious, right? The, the promise of cloud is... Because right now, most people solve this by paying Amazon or Azure for compute in the cloud, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Um, some some high up friends at Amazon have said that uh, they're feeling the the pinch of uh, chip shortages uh, as much as everyone else is right now. So a lot of the compute is being routed towards their bigger customers, and it's leaving some of the smaller ones um, with less. Uh, prices are of course going up, um, and um, in this sort of quasi recession, it's uh, everyone's looking to reduce costs. I don't think there's a CIO on the planet who uh, doesn't have written into their employment agreements that they have a, a partial mandate to decrease costs where they can. Um, and cloud, uh, the cloud bill can be up to or, or sometimes exceed 50% of a company's technology budget nowadays. And I believe uh, almost 80% of the funds that VCs are investing in uh, these AI startups are basically flowing directly through to the cloud services providers. So when you think about that, only 20% of VC money is being deployed to um, to building new IP and, and uh, hiring personnel, 80% is going to pay Azure, AWS, and, and what have you. Yeah, we're so, building some AI tools, the real vision, and the, the cost is the compute. Everything absolutely. else is relatively straightforward. It's the bloody compute, and you're competing with these giants for the compute. So when it comes, gone. I was just going to say, and that's why there's been a number of uh, so many, many companies that are building these compute platforms, and, and some have been on your show as well. And we're all, we have that shared objective of reducing the cost of compute, but also making um, a new set or evolution of tools that get out of the way of the, the researchers or the developers or the application developers. 
because that's the other thing. It's been engineered to be so complex nowadays. Like that, there's like 50 cycles of this and waterfall that. You know, like as a, again as a business, I just wanted people to get out of the way. I just wanted to express my workload, get my results, and move on. Now, when you go to any of these cloud providers, there's like 70 pages of instance types, and then different config files. And if you screw up the wrong thing, um, you're now compromised and get locked out. Or you have what they call this, the the $50,000 oopsies. You wake up the, you know, on Monday morning and forgot something on a, on a Friday afternoon. So um, all of this stuff makes, makes it difficult, I think. It puts an upper limit on the pace of innovation. So talk me through what you've, what you've built and how it's being used and what it does for costs. So from a cost perspective, um, we've done um, several deployments in commercial and non-commercial uh, locations. So manufacturers, hospitals, airports on the commercial side. Um, and it's about 8% of the cost of cloud for, for example, a machine vision, typical run-of-the-mill Sorry, machine vision. 8, 8% or 80%? 8%. 8%. 8%. So a 92% reduction in the cost of using, for example, um, a Microsoft custom vision or AWS recognition solution, which is a machine vision platform. Um, you can spend a formidable amount of money in a hurry uh, when running these intelligent machine vision um, analytics platforms on a near continuous basis. Um, but if you harness um, all of the computers, laptops, servers that exist at that airport, so what we're doing right now in a couple of locations, um, it's 92% cheaper. And data doesn't leave the building. Um, we're also deployed at a couple of universities. And this, we do it at no cost. It's free to academic institution, true to our initial mandate, which is to accelerate innovation. And we just launched um, last week a project called the Hunt for the Legendre Pair uh, of Length 117. And for, for the non-mathematicians, uh, basically Legendre Pairs are kind of like prime numbers in the sense that they satisfy certain rules. Prime numbers, they're divisible by themselves at one. Legendre Pairs have a whole bunch more rules um, and they're very difficult to find. But when you find them, they're extremely useful in cryptography and for self-correcting code and some other things. So these special numbers have special uses that are very useful and finding them uh, would, would uh, well, would overcome some, some conjectures in one, in one sense and it has some practical use cases elsewhere. But you would have to search uh, 15 septillion numbers. I've never used that, that scientific prefix or post or whatever in, in normal conversation. It was the first time. Uh, it would take on one laptop something like 200 million years to, uh, to search that space and find these numbers. So to pay the cloud to do this is impossible. But if you have uh, several million cores from um, all of the idle computers, fridges, phones around the planet, our university campuses, suddenly it, it unlocks the ability to do some of this discovery uh, without breaking the bank. Um, and so again, it's free. So in this case, we have uh, something like 15,000 cores worth of academic uh, compute along from campuses. Um, and We've recently been working with the World Community Grid so to bring up Steady at home. Um, they're powered by Boink. So that's a very old uh, technology. It basically requests that everyone runs VMs on the computers. And we're embedding our work in inside of that technology. And slowly we're proving things. Um, it gives access to up to 500,000 uh, machines on the planet. So that's more computing power than all of Canada put together for, for example, the national research infrastructure. So there's a lot of power in these networks of people who are motivated and incentivized for science or economically or, or both um, and making it easy to tap into that 
power is one aspect. Making it secure is the other big one. So there's a reason why people aren't executing uh, Python, random Python from all over the web or all over the, the world on their computers or random C code. You'd be crazy. That's how you get completely owned. But there is intuitive programming languages that people execute. In fact, 5 billion people um, execute every day on their computer. That's JavaScript. Every time you surf the web, every time you do a Google search and you click on a link, you're fetching code from somewhere on the planet and you're executing it on your computer in order to view the page and fill in forms and everything else. Every time you log into Netflix or your bank or you surf the web, you're you're executing code from somewhere else on your computer. So that type of security profile is only possible because Google, Microsoft, and Amazon have put billions of dollars into making the web secure, fast, and ubiquitous. I mean, name me a device that doesn't run the web stack, right? And so building a compute platform out of this um, is the new thing that we think we've done. Again, a concept of distributed computing is as old as computing itself, but building it out of the most successful networking technology that everyone has at their fingertips already just makes a whole bunch of sense and now we can talk about web 3 hey everyone we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners we'll be right back another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, come, come on to use cases of the bear. Just want to let people understand a bit more. So now let's say you're university. Somebody needs a bunch of compute power, and there's thousands of computers at the university in various formats. As you said, it could be fridge, you know, it could be Internet of Things compute, it could be any compute, really. And you can tap into that. So, firstly, what's the process of tapping into that compute? And secondly, what's the motivation for me for allowing you to use my compute and setting it up? So, talk, talk me through the, the two sides of that equation. So, I'll talk through some fun different scenarios. So there's three parts, um, generally speaking, in a comp any compute technology. One, it's the, the mouth or where the jobs come in. So some sort of um, set of APIs. We call that DCP client. Then you have a scheduler that allocates workload. And then you have the worker agents, the workers that do the actual number crunching. So... Um, to answer your question, if I'm a student and I want to set up a compute cluster really quickly in a computer lab, um, we've packaged the workers in a variety of different ways that can suit enterprise needs or student needs on a budget. Um, a student can walk up to 10 computers and open uh, a Chrome tab and literally type bcp.work slash the name of their cluster. So I have one called Dan. So if I type dcp.work slash Dan in a browser tab, um, and I press, the, I give the password, and I press start. That computer is now in the Dan compute group, just like that. So if I open this, and it takes two seconds to open a browser tab. So I can do this on 20 computers. And um, those 20 computers, if they each have eight cores, well, voila, I have a couple hundred cores and uh, two dozen GPUs just by entering a website and a password like that. Um, and then I can close all the tabs and walk away. So it's kind of like a pop-up compute cluster. 
that cost nothing. These are just all computers were sitting there. Um, and then I would use the APIs to, to push my, my job at that, that Dan compute group. And if I want to figure out which computers to allocate it to, uh, and relative that, load and all of that. That's it. But any, any modern distributed computing system should be expected to do that. And so ours is no different. Um, all the user has to do is say, this is my, my data I want to process. Uh, this is the code I want executed against that data. Go away and come back with my results. And that's it. There's no environment configuration. There's no Docker container. There's no image creation. There's no uh, port forwarding. There's, the, there's no firewall setting. There's none of that. It's just code, data. Okay, so now that's the student with 20 computers around him in a lab. And he can go around and do each one. That's it. Now let's talk can, about a big project. So then we can go up a step. Okay, so that's, that's like a really quick, you know, a pop-up compute group. If we go one step up to the IT um, uh, level within the university and they want to get serious, they can, using their existing uh, network installer methodologies, they can deploy screensaver. So we've taken the engine out of the browser that does the compute and we've shoved it into a screensaver. And that screensaver basically can be deployed as in any the same way you deploy Microsoft Word to two thousand computers simultaneously on a campus. So if the screensaver's on, it means the computer's not being used, so it can be used for compute. That's it. And th so this genius. everyone here should be saying, That's well, everyone genius. here should be like, I've, I've seen this movie before, uh, forty years ago or whatever, uh, SETI at home. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. That was a very popular model that worked. So we we just put the same modern technology into the old concept of into a screensaver. And so what are you left with? You're left with 2,000 computers that when no one's using them, which is always going to be between 5 and 8 in the morning and sometimes throughout the day, and that's a lot of compute. Um, and if, if we say that one virtual CPU core on the cloud is worth about $440 a year, um, and you have eight vCPUs per computer, and you have 2,000 computers, and I'm not even talking about graphics cards and GPUs, or just the cores, if you do eight times 2,000 times 440, that's what it would cost the, the, the research um, facility community to buy that same compute power from the cloud on demand. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's not even factoring in GPUs or anything else. And yet it's available free right now. And, and so now, and that's just one university campus with 2,000 computers, 2,000, that's probably on the lower end. And your last question was, how do I get involved and, and make some money? Um, we've also uh, created or we allow anybody in the world to participate in the global compute network. It's the exact same thing as City at Home or World Community Grid, same, same concept, but just built on secure web technology, the same technology that's used for online banking, everything else that underpins the web. Um, same idea. Anybody can participate and get paid. And what they get paid in is cash. Um, we've, uh, we've reserved or we're, we're waiting for market demand to add um, crypto and other settlement layers. But right now, we've, we've started, we started with the bread and butter approach where people are doing real compute. They want to be paid real dollars. And if they choose to be paid in something else in the future, we're, we're certainly um, happy to include those layers. Um, but when you look at the, the market demand for compute that's only exploding and chip shortages and everything else, um, there's an argument to be able to sell computing power for about $100 per a vCPU year. Um, and if you have eight in your laptop and a GPU and you run it half of the time, these devices should be able to pay for themselves within uh, two to three years or, or less of their, of their lifetime. And this is so, the Uber approach, right? It's basically uh, the Uber absolutely. of compute. 
Absolutely. Except um, public jobs um, have to be non-sensitive. So your, your typical hospital and manufacturing airport where we're also deploying these compute networks don't want their jobs on open public networks. Correct. And yeah. so the ability to cordon off workers into their respective groups uh, gives everybody something. So big, gigantic, million core networks for science and research and public good jobs, forced fire detection, which is very apropos right nowadays. Um, but then also these small clusters for uh, allowing hospitals to not break the bank as they explore AI tools. And, and is having distributed compute safer because no computer gets to see the full workings? So if you hack one computer, you're only going to see one set of workings. You're not going to see the whole you know, genome model you're working on or whatever. I would say it depends on the workload and it de depends on the resources of the actor on the other side. If we're talking about a nation state um, with enough resources, um, it's never safe to assume that something's 100% safe, right? Um, but uh, some problems, some workloads require all of the data, the entire training set to be in the same runtime environment. So in these cases that are not data parallel, someone who cracks one of them uh, will get access to uh, almost the totality. So again, it depends on the workload and it depends on uh, the resources available to the other actor. Um, and so the approach we've taken and, and, and unt until uh, full homomorphic encryption becomes actually available and affordable and doesn't eat sort of like a hundred thousand times overhead, um, the easiest approach is just to hold it off um, trusted computers for trusted workloads. So something like the Department of Defense, they'll just run it on their internal networks. It never leaves the building. It's no problem. But for others that have less need for secretary, let's say it's us training our AI model, you know, what commercial value is that to somebody else? Relatively limited. So we can use any distributed network. Exactly. And, and you have all kinds of uh, national statistics agencies. You know, like I'm thinking in example, Canada, National Resources Canada. They want to monitor all oh, the presence of forest fires and how they're spreading and um, recession or of, of tree lines or whatnot. Um, so those data sets are already public. And they're bought with tax dollars, so they're, they're definitely public. And so running gigantic workloads like that on public networks, uh, it makes a, a great, uh, make all, all kinds of sense. Uh, smart cities applications that are for the betterment of, of uh, your municipality, but those, those should be public jobs because it's benefiting the, the cities as a whole, unless there's you know, sensitive uh, jobs, then yes, then you do those on, on uh, secured computers. And some of these huge models, the global climate change models that are distributed in nature so different people can work on them in different universities or whatever, makes total sense, I guess. Absolutely. Why enrich yeah. Amazon? They make enough money. They do. They certainly do. Yeah. So, uh, and on, while we're talking about smart cities and, and AI, um, I was recently listening to a panel um, there's a pool of investors and they're asking, what comes after AI? Like, let's put on our, our futurist hats and let's see what comes next. Um, and everyone unanimously said, oh, more AI. So it was uh, perhaps not a, a very um, uh, interesting answer. Um, but I'd like to tackle with that with you. You've seen like a lot of folks, a lot of their takes on, on where AI is going. Um, I want to make the case for, we're going to see fragmented or personalized, customized, decentralized AI. Um, I think that right now all the AI models are being trained and developed and controlled by massive organizations right now on the planet. Uh, but you, we can see a need for every 
municipality or every hospital or every uh, locale to have its own AI that's going to take care of water purification or optimizing bus routes or the train schedules or uh, maybe regional optimizations for surgeries across hospitals for, for sort of uh, local efficiencies, but also sharing those efficiencies regionally. Um, and so you could almost see every hospital, every bus station, every city hall having their own large language models trains on, on their bylaws or on their local standing operating procedures and so on and so forth. Each of those models, um, almost like a, a village millions of years ago, would take care of a fire, right? You'd be the caretaker of a fire locally. Well, we're going to become caretakers of our, of our local AI models that are going to make sure where that did things I are have, running efficiently. Where did I hear this conversation? I've gone through this conversation with somebody talking about exactly this. I think it, it, it makes sense, right? We've seen this wave in computing as well. Uh, everything was in a room and then all of a sudden it's on your desk and now it's in a room but then it's on your desk and now it's back in the cloud in a room and now it's they're calling it edge where it's coming back again and back and forth and so on and so forth. Same with AI. It's, start, it's big, huge models that are... It's centralized to decentralized to centralized to decentralized, unbundling, bundling. We're seeing it endlessly, right? Endlessly. And so AI is going to go through that that phase. And so a lot of people are putting a lot of work into the algorithms and making them more efficient uh, and able to run on smaller and smaller devices at the edge um, for, for inferencing. But we also want to be able to train them or have them constantly learn from data near the sensors that are the ones we interact with or where we're generating data like our individual municipalities. Um, and so when you're going to have um, these, these centralized AI models that are um, basically cooperating um, in society, with society, with part of society built into it, you're going to need compute. And I'm not, I'm not pitching or standing up distribute. This is just going to be true regardless of the compute platform that's, that's employed. Here is a problem that cloud has not yet solved. If we're going to run these uh, cooperative AI models sort of built into society, sort of the helper models all over the place, they're going to run on compute and data at these different edges. Um, and up until now, cloud is one owner of its infrastructure. Um, and it's scheduling workloads based on uh, hardware that it owns and controls. So it's basically performance-based um, scheduling. What happens when the owners of the infrastructure that come together, the different computers and the different traffic lights and the different servers and the IoT device and that come together to create that data and compute fabric uh, to power the site are not owned by the same owner. Now you have heterogeneous ownership and not just heterogeneous um, uh, hardware that you have to overcome. So this becomes interesting. And um, I was on a panel with, with um, Ericsson and they said the biggest problem that's going to have to be overcome in order to facilitate and true edge, decentralized edge computing is going to be remuneration. Okay, which takes me to sort of like a final interesting uh, thought process. When you get your electrical bill, well, at the end of the, the month, it doesn't say that you bought four toaster hours and uh, six light bulb minutes and uh, 17 fridge days. Uh, it says you consumed, you know, X kilowatts of power. This is your electrical bill and that's done. It doesn't matter what appliance uh, you are using. There's, there's, a, there's a, a value that's been attributed to the, the electrical service that, that you uh, consumed. Well, compute, we're still stuck in that yesteryear version where we're, we're charging people based on the availability of a particular instance type. And the instance is just the name of the hardware it's running on. And that's what I meant beginning with the 70 pages of these instances. 
What if instead it's just, look, you have a problem and you launch this workload and your results are, are worth this, the same way that your electrical bill is just pared down. Then we're going to have to do that in order to deal with heterogeneous ownership and heterogeneous platforms. And by here, I'll define heterogeneous. It just means different. So you'll have phones, you'll have fridges, you'll have computer servers, but you'll also have it. It's owned by the library, club, uh, by residents, you know, uh, uh, local households who are part of that municipality, and they can get an offset on their electrical bills or whatever if they contribute their idle compute capacity. So measurement, without being able to be spoofed or fooled, is critical. Security, you know, the inability for a malicious workload to compromise any of those devices is paramount. Um, and simplifying access to these, 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 making it easy is the final pillar. Those are the three pillars, I think, that not us, but any compute platform that claims it will put a dent in edge computing and AI will have to overcome in order to make that future a reality and get us closer to the singularity, for example. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners, and then we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Firstly, when you talk about separating electricity hours by toaster hours and fridge hours and whatever, aircon hours, actually that whole process could be run by AI once you get to that granular level. Because if every internet of things is giving you that information, then your own household AI can control better than your Nest can, which is a very mild version of this, that you can become hyper lean and effective and you can exactly see what's causing your problems and do you need to change that AC unit or whatever it is? You know, that, that, that in itself is interesting. When we're talking about localized AI, you can have household level AI. You know, already we're, we're very close to having LLMs on our phone that don't need to run on the internet. So that becomes personalized AI, household AI, municipal AI, online group AI. You know, so Real Vision is developing AI and AI, and that's for the community of Real Vision. So it's a community. AI built for the purposes of that community. It becomes super interesting and it links everything. And here's my issue with the singularity and all of this is we don't yet understand, and I don't think we ever will, how large language models learn. We don't know what they know and we don't know how smart they are because we're trying to speak a foreign language to something. And we are, you know, if you go and speak to somebody in Hindi right now, you're not going to assess whether they're smart or not. You're just like trying to somehow in a broken language, try and you, you can speak this much to them. And, you know, if I listen to Sam Altman speak or listen to the guy who runs Anthropic or listen to Emad from Stability, like nobody's got a fucking clue how this stuff works. And what is interesting to me is if you do link everything, well, AI can spread everywhere. It has... If it has some ability to think like a virus, which it may well do, we don't know, then it has an ability to use all compute everywhere, whenever it wants, however it wants, 
and control everything around our environment. That's kind of an unintended consequence that I've thought through on this. While well, you're now really, one cannot um, avoid thinking about Terminator here and, and Skynet and everything else, right? Um, for the next, for the foreseeable immediate future, um, we think, or at least uh, we think here that um, LLMs are excellent stochastic parrots. They happen to be able to spit out things that are... But you don't so know that. Uh, because when you watch how it won DeepMind Go, right? DeepMind, that was... I don't know if you watched the documentary, but it was... We've all read the story. We all know it. You watch it. It was the first four games or whatever, three games. It played ordinary human games. It then lost a game and never played a human game ever again. And the commentators were like, what the fuck is it doing? This is stupid. This is a dumb move. And it never, ever lost again in a way that we don't understand. So I don't think it's stochastic parroting. I think that's a human protective thing that we suggest because then we, we can understand it. Like we use narrative and mimetics to understand the world around us. We kind of say that. It, it, it's certainly an important conversation to, to continuously have because it, the minute we get... Um, we relax our, our skepticism or um, our, our caution around these things so that we'll, we'll begin to make mistakes. I mean, it's the same with CRISPR gene editing in a way the parallels there are for the atomic bomb. I mean, with Barbenheimer that came out just recently, right? Like, a, and with great power, we have to be very, very careful. And um, we, we obviously are with some dark keywords, cynicism here in the office. We, we talked about maybe accidentally unleashing something like that. Um, we're, yeah, we would become in serious trouble if we start too early, letting AI um, launch more AI jobs and start doing stuff. Um, so I think it's, it's always important to have guardrails, for sure. Um, we have made sure that there's a big red button, of course, everyone does. Um, I don't... Yeah, but the, you might be able to, but the LLMs can't. Because if, if it has infected your fridge, and it can, if I can store an LLM on my phone, I can store it on my fridge. And so in which case, the LLM can be anywhere and no, exactly like a virus. It's just something, we're not there yet, obviously, but it's just something I think there is like, yeah, this is very difficult to stop if it goes certainly too far. Ex Machina, if you've seen the movie, it was such an excellent movie. And the biggest question that wasn't asked explicitly was, yeah, are these, um, these AI um, humanoids, are they simulating? emotion with really high fidelity or are they experiencing it and it's it almost becomes a metaphysical question like does I, it matter if that's it gets... my point is i was having this discussion about you know do they exhibit emotion it doesn't matter just because how we see the world is human emotion it doesn't mean different things can live i mean because if we know the complexity of a bee colony or a bacteria colony these are Superorganisms. They have a collective intelligence of which we don't understand. Yet and we it's fascinating to anthropomorphize everything. Yeah. Because we can only think of it in our world. Yeah. But yeah, and it's, and it's fascinating to watch these bee colonies or, 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 or fungi colonies. colonies. I mean, oh, yeah. The ones that, that actually you know, take over their hosts' brains uh, and, and by injecting spores and whatnot is absolutely fascinating and terrifying. Um, Let's hope AI doesn't start doing that. that would, then we're really in trouble, right? Yeah, well, you know, is there a flip? You know, are we biological computers? I mean, that's the other question that biologists and physicists are trying to answer. 
Because if we are biological computers, then there's no reason they couldn't. And, and you know, it's always fun to ask the reverse question. You know, like um, we keep saying that humankind has domesticated wheat, but someone actually flipped that that conversation. Well, wheat domesticated Chicken. us. Like right? dogs, my dogs domesticated dogs domesticated humans because they now right. have their food given to them. Yeah, same with wheat. Wheat is now an endless. It's survived. That's its entire you know, yeah, job is to survive. Making sure it's healthy. It's watered. It's uh, you know the lands are irrigated. It's in these beautiful parts of fertile land. And so on and so forth. So, I guess at the end of the day, it's important to understand that we're not above or below um, all the other participants in, on this planet. Um, we have to be caretakers and, and be careful. And uh, as long as um, we're progressing in a way that people are benefiting, um, all people are benefiting, all people and non people, I guess, um, then things are sustainable. Um, the, why are we inventing AI? Why is this AI craze in the first place? Do we need it? We've been, if you seem to have done fine, look, over the last uh, several thousands of years, millions of years. Well, AI is, is a, again, like compute, it's a means to an end. AI in of itself is useless. You know, what are the use cases that are interesting with AI? Well, it's all about gaining some efficiencies here and there. You know, better scheduling of, of resources. You know, if you can make sure that the right patch of, of cucumbers... Also, it stops you know, knowledge being a scarce asset. Right, yeah. so... Your well, brain. Well, what do, you, what your, do you mean by that? Yeah. So, your brain, what you know and what you've learned, is a scarce asset, right? It's not easily repeatable. But we're seeing that AI can scale knowledge in a way that no single human can. Now, we're not at AGI yet, but we're at levels of knowledge which are, frankly, making a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer, and a whole bunch of professions questioning what is their economic value versus an AI, right? A it's doctor charges a thousand bucks. The lawyer charges a thousand bucks an hour because he's a senior partner. Really? How much is that worth versus the AI? It, it, right. It's, it's very interesting. And, and coming from a background. Everything that gets the... digitized goes to zero in cost, which you know, because that's what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I used to fly for the military as a military pilot before. And, and of course, it's, it's, uh, it's hit us too. Like, we're asking the same questions. You know, AI can uh, land a plane far more accurately. In fact, I think when they were landing drones on the U.S. aircraft carriers, uh, they had to actually build in some stochasticity to its actual touchdown point because it was so perfectly landing in the same place every single time that it was starting to damage. Um, like, the, the tarmac that it was landing on because it was like pinpoint precision. So they actually had to build in some some variability to its landing spot um, so so absolutely and a lot of people are, are worried about you know losing jobs to AI. it's not that we're going to lose jobs to AI. So we're going to evolve new jobs uh more creative ones uh, more more guidance uh it, there'll be a transition and whatnot and i'm not i don't think it's going to happen too too quickly i mean i think there's a scare right now because there's been a leap uh obviously with chat gpt and other similar technologies um but there still will be a, a reasonable transition um, between our current, uh, current way we do things because it comes down to trust. And as you said earlier, we don't know exactly what's going on at the end of the day, deep down within so, these, these models. So here's a question about that and distributed networks is there are two battles going on, which is the same battle we talked about earlier, that is centralized AI. Let's call it open AI. Let's call it Google. Let's call it Anthropic. And there's a few others. And China has their own and a few other people. And then there's the open source AI models. How the hell do you stop it? Why can't it? It's like 
you can't stop atomic um, energy development or nuclear weapon development, really. It's somewhat easier to control the uranium. But, you know, we've seen it with CRISPR, gene editing, any of this stuff. It just goes to a different country. It's the prisoner's dilemma. If you don't do it, someone else will, and you're kind of stuck, and, um, and therefore you must. Um, it is, uh, I mean, entire doctrines are being rewritten. In fact, are already rewritten how if your enemy or any, any um, naval or, or air force fleet that, that, that harnesses AI will, will have air superiority. Um, it, it's imperative, right, uh, to, to develop these things, because if you don't, your, your enemy will. Um, so how do you stop that? That's really hard. I mean, I guess you, you cut off, I mean, you can only go after algorithms, data, and compute if you want to stop it, and communications. But you've distributed compute. The algorithms are distributed because they're open source. I mean, would you stop electricity? But that, even that's distributing now, right? Now we've got right. solar panels and we have, you know, we're moving away from centralized grids to decentralized grids. It's just. So, so is it, it's almost depressing to ask the question, you know, do we, the human species, uh, have we matured? Have we learned anything since, you know, the detonation of, uh, uh several hundreds of nuclear bombs and the dis devastating effect they've had? Have we learned anything when we're creating potent nerve agents, bioweapons? Have we learned anything about doing anti-satellite kill kinetic weapons where we're creating shrapnel orbits uh, and all uh, at seven kilometers per second that will basically uh, age us here? I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this. If you look at low Earth orbit, it's littered with um, dead debris and satellites. And the f one of the ways you knock out your opponents, I might have gone in this sort of military slide here, uh, but if you want to knock out communications, so take out the satellites and take out the undersea cables. Um, cutting an undersea cable isn't really going to um, um, threaten our civilization, at least not in the long term. But if you start um, taking out satellites with kinetic weapons, creating, again, like these gigantic, irreparable um, shrapnel clouds that, that travel at, at speeds that will, you won't even feel, it would just go right through you and you'd be pulverized. So we're, 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 we're at risk of creating a very physical jail around, uh, around the planet for not, if we don't let cooler heads prevail. Um, so the question is, can cooler heads prevail? Or is it the prisoner's dilemma? I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, it's also interesting to me at the center of all of this, of all of this conversation we're having is Elon Musk. Cause not only has he put up more satellites than all the other governments combined. And he's done it as a single person. But he's created an entire network communication, distributed network communication, which is Starlink. Yeah. Um, but then I look at the cars, and they are distributed compute. And they are using AI to drive the robots, because that's what they are in the end. They're computers. Oh, yeah. Everything is a computer. I mean, this, I mean, this AirPod case um, will, you know, I can find it. I can locate this chips in it. It's broadcasting its position, obviously. So is this phone, this laptop, this smart TV, that laptop, this thing. Everything is uh, basically a computer with chips and a sensor, right? Um, so Elon Musk, when you take a step back and you look at all the companies from uh, solar power, uh, battery storage, uh, obviously launch system, satellite network and now communications platform. I always wondered why you bought Twitter. 
um, training the AI. It was right. Well, this training the AI, but the optimist in me thought when I was looking back and said, "Okay, he's, uh, you know, I had all the the boring company, right?" For I thought he was setting up. He might still be. I have no idea. I'm just speculating. as my the the curious uh, wannabe astronaut in me. I I always thought he was building his own space program, but compartmentalized. He is. Right. Well, without question. but if you can deploy these subsoline tunnel diggers to the moon, now you don't have to carry all the, the materials to, to build these bases. You can just dig them out, and especially if they're And also, if you want the base on Mars, it has to be underground. That's it. So, like, he's got all the things put together, and maybe at the at the last second, he notices, you know what's missing? The the imagination and the will of the public. Right? Uh, so, if you can influence the media and, and get people to dream again, as Elon Musk started, and I hope he still is, uh, as a, an optimistic dreamer influenced by Jules Verne and, and all the explorers. And um, he built all the technology. And the last thing that was missing was maybe the will of, of uh, the people, the, the, the boldness, the, the desire to dream big. I, you know, I, now it becomes almost social commentary. I feel like as, as, uh, the human race has been preoccupied with less than exciting topics, I think, these days. And in fact, probably... Um, that are damaging to our, our collective well-being, um, and nobody's talking about, or, or, or few people, relatively speaking, are, are talking about nuclear-powered space travel and like what what's made, you know, what's what's the, below the surface of Mars, or how much waters are actually below the poles on the Moon, or helium three. If you mine that off the, out of the regular dust, you can create anadromic fusion fuel, right? Which Power, like a teaspoon of it would power a city for for weeks. No one no one talks about this. We're we're more busy uh, contemplating politics and whatnot. So I was sort of hoping that Elon Musk was going after the last piece of his entire space program, his disassembled space program, to actually influence the people, nudge them towards being curious. And he's just going to do it anyway. <clears throat> now again, this is not to pass judgment. Elon Musk is a good person or a bad person or. He- he does everything to everybody. He pisses everybody off and inspires everybody at the same time. And everyone thinks he's a crook as well as a genius. So that aside, I think what he did was say, okay, I want to go to Mars, the mission statement, and I want to build a colony there. So go back to first principles. What's the hardest thing? Well, we know we could probably get there. The technology was there. He was paying for it. No government could afford to do it. So then if you break it down to the component parts and get each one, each one of those businesses to be cash flow positive, so the car company, let's say, let's say the AI training, which is Twitter, let's say, um, obviously SpaceX, all of this, they all throw cash. And before you know it, they're all building this end goal. And then it just kind of happens because yeah. everything is in place. And that's what, that's what I, you know, when, even when I look at the Optimus robot is like, well, you can't send humans to Mars to start with. And if you're going to have to do stuff, you'll do it with robots. How do you train robots that are acceptable to humans that don't freak you out? Is train it on humanity. So you can your political views will match with your robots or whatever it is, which is Twitter, which is why he doesn't give a shit about freedom of speech. He just wants an unbiased model. So he can train the robots to be like you and I. I, yeah, I've once upon a time, I'm sure he was uh, dreaming of space travel. Um, I'm sure he still does, but uh, it, it's important not to become too cynical, I, I think, right? Otherwise, why are, we, why are we trying to go to Mars in the first place? This is another question. Like, why? Why go? Are you just going to set up a, a copy of ourselves over there just to 
do more of the same because in that case, it's not AI that's the virus, we're the virus, right? Well, maybe that's true, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, but the other question I want to throw at you in all of this is, okay, we've kind of looked at steady state of compute, saying, okay, we're distributing, we can scale it. AI has come, it's a game changer, requires more compute. Everything's just going to be more compute, more compute. That's endless. Talk me through quantum. Quantum is going to make a lot of conventional compute obsolete. Um, so it's a guessing game as to when it's going to be ready. And I, I was having this conversation just recently. Conventional compute computers have come about decades ago, but it's only in the last 10 years, 20 years, where you're starting, you're starting to see like coding really built, deliberately built into even a high school curriculum, right? So from the moment of invention, it took decades. Like, of course, it was used immediately, used to both women and calculate trajectories, but by the time it's actually fully mainstream, like baked into our educational curriculum and everything else, it took several decades. Um, as a physicist who's taken a quantum mechanics class or two, um, there are still a lot of hurdles that we're still working on overcoming to make um, uh, the first quantum computers more than just uh, cool, but, but viable for big problems. And I know there's, there's a lot of big efforts that you, again, can count on two hands that are doing some pretty amazing stuff right now. You've seen the wormhole on a chip video that came out by uh, other magazines is, is formidable. Um, but there's still a long ways to go before that technology is mature enough to be deployed on uh, many desks, let alone everyone's desk. And then it's going to take even longer before they're, you know, it's part of curriculum in school. Like, again, as a physicist, I, I, I was trying to look around, hey, how do I program a quantum computer? How do I write a quantum algorithm? Uh, there are a few, to, the first, the very first textbooks on this are, are just starting, right? Like everybody should know right now what a for loop is or anyone who's done like a comp sci or side, your science degree or, or um, anything touching the sciences. Everyone knows what a for loop is and how, how to write one. Um, but if you ask someone, hey, how do you write the quantum version of that? Or is there a quantum version of that? Like I, I, I don't, as a, someone who's written a lot of code myself and who's a physicist, I have no clue how to think what about what does it writing. do to everything when you've got kind of, so we talked about knowledge being scalable. We're talking about what you're doing is making compute scalable. But now we've got with quantum and we're not there yet. So let's talk 30 years in the future, infinite compute and AI. That feels like that is the singularity of all things because there's no constraints on anything that we understand today. So in two words, um, I'm going to say more triangles. Um, and that's, um, that's an inside joke for people doing uh, finite element analysis. Uh, when you design a model, whether it's a car or an airplane, and you want to see you know, the, the impact forces and how it distorts the metals and breaks things, you break that model down into tiny little triangles, 3D versions of triangles. And, um, and then you apply the boundary conditions and you see how forces distribute everything else. Uh, but the more you turn up, the, uh, the, the fidelity, so the smaller you make those triangles, the, mo the more triangles you have, the more equations and the bigger the matrices that have to be computed it upon in order to get your answers. So basically, if you give someone, if you double the amount of compute that, that they have access to, they're, they're going to, more triangles, they're going to turn up the resolution, they're going to push the boundaries, they're going to come up with a new AI algorithm. Instead of doing like uh, 10 billion tokens, they'll go to a, a trillion tokens. I like it. We, if you, if you 
make more green pasture available to um, to rabbits, well, they're not going to just be sustainable and responsible. They're just going to multiply, and then they'll eat all that grass. So, me, the cynicist in me thinks that if you if you if you give someone infinite resources, you can find a way to use them. Is why not? I mean, that's how yeah, that's how innovation happens. You're constantly pushing uh, the barriers. If we had a space drive that could go at 90% the speed of light, um, we're going to look for a way to go at 97% the speed of light, so we can go see the you know more parts of the galaxy. It's just the way we are, I guess. So what does it mean? I think we're going to have someone uh, in the future called Raul Two and Dan Two will be having exactly the same conversation about. Um, the next thing after quantum computing, talking about what happens when we truly have infinite computing, find more ways to use it. Okay, final question. Something you and I've talked about over the years as well is, as we're getting toward distributed compute and payment systems, I'm thinking you know, at simplicity level for people to understand, it is the, it is the Uber of compute, computing, right? So I can get paid by having excess capacity, like if I wanted to have, you know, use my car for other stuff, right? I can do that and I can get paid. We're also seeing that there's machines that doesn't have to have humans. So it could be my fridge, right? In the future state, and you've tested that technology out, worked pretty well. Anything with a screensaver, if I take that screensaver, I've now given off permission to, you know, you to use my compute. So surely that, that sounds like crypto payment, right? Because that's the, that's the easiest way of making machine-to-machine payments um, and globalized payment system where you're not having to use currency. We need to push, we need to make sure- You're value. a Canadian, I don't want your Canadian dollars and I can't have got no bank account to put them into, so I have to convert them. You're just, it's ineffective and it's not fun. The moving around small amounts of money or value, uh, different currency changes, going through traditional systems is definitely a bottleneck, absolutely. But I, I just want to back up as you said some interesting stuff. Um, the idea of having the Uber for compute. That, that's, that's, I think that's a very good top-level way to, to look at um, remuneration for you know, providing a service, access to your, your excess compute power. Distributive has a, a much more holistic vision of this. It's not about, hey, who wants free money? Put your hand up and sign up your computers. That's, uh, many companies have tried that. And I think it's boring and I think it's, it's unsatisfying you know, um, to, to, to human, humankind. What we want is for active participants in the innovation journey and sort of like staking a claim or taking ownership. Compute is one form of value, but the other one is also like private data. Your fridge in the future won't just contain your food. It will have a few hard drives in it. It will store and analyze footage from your, your local security powers. It will look at if a person is starting to have changes in their gait as they're aging or if they're dizzy or if they're couch later or if they fell or something like that. Like if you, have an ownership say on your data and on the compute and all the results of it and aren't just uploading it to some monolithic um, cloud services provider, then all of a sudden you're a participant and not just a subject in this digital age. So some people, yes, sure, they Perhaps can make some you money. Have agency, you have agency because your some data agents. is part of you, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a byproduct of you. That's it. And so participating in these and these mesh networks is the best way to stay involved and maintain a voice and some control. And so the future that, that we are, um, that since we've met four years ago that we've made good on, on producing is one in which participants uh, are truly participating. They're, they're not just getting paid for the compute. They're, they're, they're finding these Lazada pairs and they're elucidating all the, the 
formation mechanisms for galaxies, dark matter, and then uh, helping uncover some of these things or crunching Kellogg's serial so, you know, so, sales data, right? So let's say it becomes also cause-based, right? Humans love a mission, they love a cause. So I'm going to say to whoever it is, is running a huge project on something that matters to me, pancreatic cancer and, gene and um, genome editing to remove that. So I can then say, well, you can use my computer for that. So as opposed to giving you money to the Pancreatic Cancer Society, I can say, look, just use my compute as well. And so I just permission them. So I'm now doing a mutual good, societal good, out of my own free choice. And it's not about money exchange. It's about I'm giving you something of mine that's valuable. Well, a perfect analogy for that. And then I'll come right back to it. Like I agree 100%. Uh, Bank of Montreal gave $5 million cash to the AI hub at the uh, University of Toronto. They turned around and they gave that $5 million cash to Microsoft Azure. Uh, so Microsoft got $5 million. Uh, Bank of Montreal, BMO, got the $5 million tax receipt. And U of T uh, got uh, to do some AI compute. What if you provided $5 million worth of compute um, to U of T and the value of that $5 million was the tax receipt, but the, the green cash, as they call it, never moved? Now, BMO has hundreds of thousands of enterprise servers full of excess compute uh, most of the day. They could have donated $5 million worth of computing power, or that's the enterprise version. You could ask 5 million people. Uh, uh, donating a dollar worth of compute. Uh, Real Vision has uh, hundreds of thousands of unique visitors per month. Something distributive is done. And I haven't really gone heavy on like the tech and innovation we've done, but this is important. We've created five lines of code that we can put in your website that would make all uh, multiple hundred thousand visitors turn into compute nodes if they accepted. Um, that would provide power uh, simultaneously just by putting those five lines of code in the website. So if the New York Times so put we, our So we would say code. to our members, let's say, listen, if you want to help us continue to build our AI, which is for the community, by the community, essentially, we can either give that money to Azure, or you can be truly part of this. And yeah, while they're, while, they're watching your, your, while they're watching your content, their computer is basically sleeping other than what it's displaying on the screen. Their processor, some proportion of them could be helping work on Real Vision's models. And I, I'm using real, I'm not picking on Real Vision here, but the same thing no. with the New York Times, Global Mail, and basically any community with hundreds of thousands or millions of online viewers. I mean, if you put these five lines of code into the New York Times HTML page, you have six million compute nodes just like that available. That's, that's more computing power, like I said earlier, than all of uh, Canada's national research infrastructure put together just by putting six lines of code in uh, the index.html file of that website. Um, think about YouTube. YouTube, bought by Google. Uh, every time you upload a video, it's being uh, encoded on Google servers. But instead, they could be doing distributing that that video encoding into pieces onto computers of people that are already watching YouTube while they're there. Uh, and you could use this truly to eliminate ads or provide an alternative. Six lines of code, get rid of ads. Now help us run our, our models on on you, the patrons, instead of in the cloud. Um, that'll that'll be far more. Uh, cost-effective than uh, than these these ads. And also, ad we could pay people for that as well. We'll say, thank you, you get X dollars off your subscription next year because you've lent us compute to help train the model, so you get a 
an economic incentive out of it. And so everything we've talked about, just to, and to summarize all this, we've talked about a lot of things here. We've talked about the ability to donate, compute, and get a tax receipt from Children's Hospital in Eastern Ontario, for example. They're, they're, they're looking to recognize philanthropy, not just in cash, but donation of time and services, and now compute. We're in the digital age. It's time to recognize the donation, the value, the donated value of compute. And thankfully, we have the cloud service providers who've laid out 70 pages plus worth of the actual value of compute. So that I think it's, it's very, it'd be very easy to recognize the value of compute because it's an, a market um, commodity that's been well-established. So that's the donation model. But then again, there's this web collaborative online web community model where just being on a page allows you to participate in the content creation or AI model creation that, that serves you anyway. YouTube, we'll just talk about open mail, like anybody with these online presences. Um, and same again, to bring it back to these uh, participatory AI models at the edge, if you want these heterogeneous compute fabrics and sensor fabrics made up of different owners, they all have to be incentivized uh, fairly and they have to trust uh, each other and it will power the model that again gives value back to them from detecting, you know, when, when roots are ingressing into um, the, the water lines, they have to replace a certain stretch of pipe or optimizing the buses or, or what have that. So that's the future that we see. And again, we're, we're, I'm not saying distributive is going is to be the one to do it, but I certainly think the future is. A, a um, compute can be a common good. And people have been saying that for, for years and years and years, but I think it's a, um, more than that. I think it's a deliberate ownership, cultural mindset of the people with their, their hardware and infrastructure and data where they're, they're participating in this digital age and not just passively collecting income, but they're, they're picking a cause and they're, they're, they're dynamically interacting with it. I think it'd be wonderful to have a YouTube powered where all the video content uploaded was being encoded and done. And with, by the community of watchers itself. So it becomes a self-sustaining thing and we can cut down all these, these data center costs you know, together. And does it become more decentralized in terms of editing and everything else in terms of, um, sorry, in terms of um, any centralized entity stopping something? So if, you're, if the compute for all of the videos is being done on a distributed network, it's almost impossible to shut down the network, right? You could shut down individual worker nodes, but the work would just go somewhere else. So right. it, it becomes very resilient uh, in that sense. Yeah. Okay. Two final questions. One is, I know a lot of people are going to be listening to this and thinking or going to comment about Filecoin. So what are they doing? How is that different? Just so people understand how fundamentally different it is. Filecoin is tackling an equally gigantic problem, which is uh, more from the storage side of things. So there's a lot of unused um, storage space out there. Um, and if there's a way to intelligently stitch together those pockets of, of uh, excess storage, then you can create a decentralized storage cloud. Um, and so it's probably a really good way to use them as an analogy if, if you want to understand what we're doing. We're on the other side of that fence. Uh, we're taking up all the unused pockets of compute, excess compute capacity um, both of these are AWS, right? So they do the compute and they do the storage. And what's happening here is there's two distributed models that are attacking the centralized model. And, and more, yeah. I mean, AWS is more than just compute and storage. They're networking and they're software layers and platform layers. And there are a whole bunch of things. Like they've built, they've had a lot of time to build a lot of things, but 
um, they won't tackle, by definition, they can't tackle the web platform community sharing aspect in real time because they're not uh, web-based. Um, and B, they would be attacking their own business model by allowing people to use computers and servers that are not theirs. Um, and so um, they have too much concrete fiber optic cable and, and uh, silicone um, that they've uh, as sunk costs that, that they, they won't be able, or they won't be, they'll be hesitant um, to implement technologies that allow people to become self-sufficient. Of course. Put it only. Yeah. And there's a couple of other interesting ones in the crypto space, just because it tends to be more centralized. Hive Mapper is one, which is a decentralized version of Google Maps. Super fascinating. Um, and then there's the other one, uh, Helium, which is yep. mobile phone networks, or Wi-Fi networks decentralized. So people, are, there's, it's this centralization, decentralization mega trend, and we're seeing and it's healthy. It. It's, and it's healthy. It is healthy. It's good. Um, final question. How many people are using your technology right now? And where are you allowed to discuss it? What kind of users and how are they doing it? We have 2,000 people right now. I was just looking at the numbers. So so are still small, but we're in a dozen universities. I was saying earlier, it's free for academic institutions in Canada, States, um, Kenya, Brazil. Um, Brazil, for example, it's doing live forest fire detection using all the computers that are on the campus there. There are 8,000 cameras across the Amazon. Uh, and if you can detect smoke and fire at the earliest onset, then you can fight it more effectively. But if you're to run 8,000 cameras, uh, persistently, uh, AWS would cost you millions of dollars a month. So it's not even it's not even a it's not even possible, or it's not it's not worth it's not worth it. Forest fires create hundreds of millions of dollars of damage, so you could argue it is. But if you could do it for thousands of dollars instead of millions of dollars, then it's um, it certainly makes it more palatable. We're in six hospitals, uh, creating uh, private compute clusters in hospital uh, in order to optimize surgical schedules, and now we're starting to get into some genomics. Um, actually, one more use case here. So I meant to summarize with users. Um, this one is new and it's unique. If we can create a compute cluster by a hospital, and as we have it, and you create a compute cluster by a different hospital, there's ways where you can run models. You've heard of federated machine learning, federated models, where you can run analytics on data on computers behind each hospital's firewall, and you can fuse the results but leave the raw data behind each firewall. Now think of a hundred hospitals, think of a thousand hospitals, each with, for example, uh, small patient cohorts with psoriatic arthritis. Okay? There are new um, um, genomics approaches that allow the right medicine to get to the right person on the first try, unlike the trial and error attempt that we do nowadays. That would save hundreds of millions to billions of dollars worth of the wrong medication going to the wrong person on the first try because it means they're not going to be uh, working, you know, for uh, within months because they're, they're off work while they're going through these treatments. What it, but you can't take all that small patient forward data and put it together, uh, whether it's the cloud or somewhere else, because it's not allowed to leave the building. Data sharing is the biggest barrier to uh, innovation in the precision medicine landscape. So I say again, what if you can send compute to the data instead of bringing data to the compute, which is the cloud model? So bring compute to the data. Now you have each of these hospitals acting as their own mini clouds. But if they cooperate in the sense where they do, they run their respective pieces of compute and then fuse the results together, now you have something different. You have hospitals or individuals or whatever maintain ownership 
of their data, making some revenue from the fact that they're selling the results of those computations, but not giving up the underlying data. And, and to bring it back to Brazil, we're chopping down the, the rainforest right now. Um, I think four-fifths of medicines around the world come from um, the uh, materials, the biological materials that we find in the, the rich forests there. And um, we're losing that, right? Um, so imagine instead setting up uh, in organizations with some computer schools for all we know, or for, 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 for what it matters. And these could be many repositories of collected genetic material, sample material and computers. The computers can be used for students and, and the pursuit of knowledge during the day. And they could be running uh, all kinds of um, data pipelines, data science pipelines at night on these data things, generating revenue um, uh, locally to replace deforestation. And so this idea of data ownership, doing the compute, selling the results and creating a revenue stream, it, it's, it's basically, it's, it's a distributed, decentralized version of a cloud services provider. Imagine a virtual version of a hyperscaler where everybody gets a piece of the pie. Providers of data, providers of compute, the martial communication, the organization, the orchestration. This is what I mean by partic these participatory. So if you think about it for notes. a pharmaceutical company, it's a lot cheaper for them to distribute out the scientific research to the universities. Everyone's running their own data. They can sell it back to the pharmaceutical company. They just take what they need from that data. They can develop new drugs, et cetera. They pay for it. Everybody's a winner. Everyone saves costs. Well, in this model, uh, in the prior model, pharmaceutical companies would just buy the data from the get, like, uh, like it's, the data is collected and refined at, at the source. They get the, they buy the data once and boom, the people who provide that data, they, they're, they're gone. It's like one, it's, it's, it's just not like, use it's, like, it's like, it's like selling your IP. It's gone. Right. Um, instead they could hold on to the, to their genetic sample data and the pharma companies can just launch job. They can write the code that they were going to write anyway, they write their analytics pipelines, their AI models, their, they write their queries, they write whatever it is they were going to do if they had that data and they launch it. And then it runs remotely at those sites. And then they get the results back money or revenues generated for the, the, the custodians of that data and we're taking care they, it's it it allows local economies um the pharma companies might not be happy because the first the, the first thought is hey if we have the data we can run uh, all ten thousand analytics now we have to pay for ten thousand times for the analytics that we'd only have to pay once to get that data but if if you think about it they were just going to upload that data to the cloud and then pay the cloud ten thousand times to run it there so it's still an order of magnitude cheaper for them to not buy the data from where it's coming from, but just pay to deploy these pipelines at a reduced rate, which creates local economies over there. And of course, we, we, can, we can expand this to infinite use cases. But this is what I mean. Let's push away or let's create room for everyone else to participate in this revenue creation opportunity at, at the local economic level. Um, you don't have to answer this, but surely you've spoken to Google about this. I mean, surely they would want to put this in every browser and give it a permissioning system. And it's like, it's a game changer because they're the third runner in the cloud providing thing. They're big, but not as big as the other two. This is kind of and what Microsoft YouTube. did, pressed <laughs> the, the nuke button, right? Microsoft pressed the nuke button and said, fuck it, let's do the AI one to overtake Google and destroy search. It feels like, Somebody like Google or Microsoft or somebody's going to say, you know what, we might as well just use this technology and just completely take this over. I mean, I, in Google specifically, if, if, uh, if they find that 
idea interesting of leveraging YouTube uh, patrons while they're watching their content in order to do some of the processing uh, for them in lieu of the ads that we keep getting every 20 seconds on YouTube videos, which would free up Google's uh, uh, data center capacity or GCP capacity to sell to more customers. I mean, they're, 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 yeah, I'm, kind yeah, of they're bigger than, I'm kind of thinking bigger than that. If your little code is embedded in every single Chrome browser around the world, so now my computer, every time it goes on screensaver, is available for compute. I give permission, Google takes a slice, they become the world's largest compute provider by doing distributed com compute. It would be massive. If, if they were to do that, and it would have to be an opt-in basis, right? Because people don't want to inadvertently, right? Uh, uh, have compute cycles taken from, even though it's ephemeral, it doesn't touch your data, has nothing to do with pictures or contacts. It's purely, it's just compute power. It's not storage or files or whatnot. If Google were to do that, um, it would be the most powerful supercomputer in history, period. Uh, Why the hell would they why the hell would they know? Because nobody has invented yet a pure web-based distributed computing platform until us. Well, that's what I mean. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, all I'm thinking is like, you know, as you scale this business, you're proving it out, you're starting to have great success. I'm just, I'm just thinking through, okay, well, where's the massive disruptor here? Yeah, you can do every university, you can do all of these research things, but really? If every computer in the world that runs a Chrome browser can do this on an opt-in basis and everybody gets paid, including Google, it's like there's free money for everybody. And everybody saves the costs and it destroys Microsoft and, and it destroys Amazon, which is what they want to do. Well, I don't want to be conned between their wars here. Like we, no, that's right. <laughs> but uh, no, especially with the current chip shortage and everything else, I think uh, recycle, reuse. I think there's a lot of compute out there. I think it's... Uh, in order to, to tap into it, you need a system that's secure and trusted. And web technology has been around for decades now. And um, if you're just surfing the web without downloading stuff, it's, it's one of the most secure platforms in terms of executing untrusted code ever developed. It's the most ubiquitous technology on the planet. It's fast with WebAssembly and everything else. Um, it, it, I think it, we think it's a no-brainer. So, so yes, if Google put these uh, experiment with putting some of this code into any of their, their, their pages that they host, they would have instantaneously millions and millions of extra compute nodes and they could remunerate those compute nodes um, for their participation. So th there's a lot of good stuff here. I mean, I look forward to um, redistributing value of compute. So computer, if you buy in North America, it's $2,000. If you buy it in Kenya, it's still $2,000. The, the difference there is the average salary per annum. So um, there, there are places in the world that... Uh, um, are being excluded by cost from participating in digital economies and AI. Right now, the, they say the rich get richer. Well, the, 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 the computer are getting computier, right? Uh, and that's the, that's the price of admission for doing AI. So AI is also accelerating uh, the divide, right? Those who have the means to do it, those who don't. Um, so there is another play. It's not just making people passive income, but it's also making compute and therefore Cheap, innovation right, available, yeah, right? accessible from an ease of use, cost, what have you. Wow. We're excited. We're very excited about where this is going. Well, thank you so much for, for the, the exciting questions, the conversation. Hopefully, we'll avoid Skynet. Um, but, Who the uh, hell knows? But one thing I will do is I will check in 
check in with you in a year's time or so and right. see where you are. Because I've been following this journey and it's just a fascinating journey. I just love what you're doing. And it's just, it's just very, very big. Um, and it's very disruptive. So I love it. Great to see you, Dan. And we'll, as I said, I'll get you back soon. Thanks, Raul. Take care. Okay, so there was a lot to get our heads around there. Dan is very modest in what he's done, but to understand that any computer via a screensaver can permission decentralized compute, whether it's private or public, that is going to change the structure of how society uses compute, how AI works, how everything works. The scale of this is simply gigantic. And he's just starting in this journey. We're privileged enough to see it early on. As I said, I've been following this journey for about four years now and seen how far he's got and where this is going. And right now, we understand that all compute is owned by very few people. But maybe that's not going to be the case. Can he truly disrupt by 92% the cost of computing power? What does that mean for other countries? What does that mean for all of us? But there's some dystopian sides of distributing compute and distributing AI and having it in your fridge, in your neighborhood, in your house, everywhere. What does that mean for humanity? And when you add the quantum computing as well, it means another game changer overall. The exponential age is relentless. It's not going to stop. And the game theory that he talked about is going to continue to play out. So it'll only accelerate. And there will be regulation on many of these elements here, but it's almost impossible to put a distributed genie back in the bottle. So whether we use it to our advantage or fear it, that's up to us. But anyway, super interesting, mind-blowing conversation. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 